Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast for Thursday, August 11th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melkier, and we're talking about second half surprises, not players necessarily that have all come out of nowhere, but things that are surprising. If you take a look at a leaderboard, if you go back to July 1st and look at July 1st through today, what really stands out mostly in a good way and what does it mean, if anything, going forward? Really, it's a good excuse for us to talk about some players who probably haven't received as much attention on our shows over the course of the season as they might have deserved. And I think that's exactly what made me put the first player on our rundown today, Al, Corey Seager, who is on his way to a career high in home runs, he's got 25 already, his previous career high is 26 that he hit way back in 2016 with the Dodgers, he has lowered his strikeout rate. Since July 1st, he's at a 9.6% strikeout rate, which is outstanding, hitting for average 302, getting on base 390, and slugging too at 603. I'm starting to wonder if Corey Seager is actually a little underrated via trade right now because his overall numbers for the season include a 254 average and a 332 OBP. So the slash line's a little lighter, and hard hit rate's down just slightly. But all in all, this actually looks like a really good season for Seager, albeit one that's a, a slightly different shape than people might have expected. It is, and it's. I also think it's deceptive in that uh, that the batting average, the the deficit there is really BABIP driven. And I went digging through the the batted ball profile and looked for ways to explain it, and could not find one. So <laughs> he's got uh, a, a two forty eight BABIP. And also uh, an outgrowth of that, that's pulling down the overall uh, power numbers. He has only 13 doubles. So it, it looks like maybe a case of some doubles turning into homers. But I also just think that maybe he's just been a little bit unlucky on batted balls and should have a higher average and maybe a higher uh, ISO too. So yeah, I think it, it is a sneaky, great season for Corey Seager. And I think if you had doubts about his power, which really were more the result of, of lost time, the home run count being down last season, and of course in 2020 with the shortened season, it's the result of, of not getting 150 plus games. And that's been a problem for Seager at a few points in his career, but pretty healthy so far this season. Year one of that big deal with Texas looks good. And just like you, I looked at that batted ball profile after seeing the bad up and I thought there's got to be something here. Maybe it's uh, pulling the ball more often so he's more shift prone or something along those lines and it really it's nothing out of the ordinary the ground ball rate kind of ticked up last year he's back down closer to where he was in 2019 and 2020 so that doesn't really explain it typically Corey Seager's a player that has a bad bit in that low 300s range so it does seem like legitimate bad luck and I think a 280-290 average going forward is a safe expectation and a little more power than you expect on a per game basis plus it's a Texas lineup that's a little better than people expected. We figured they'd take a step forward over the course of the year, and I think they're kind of around that that sort of league average mark. So the counting stats are actually pretty good for Corey Seager as well. 
Um, and I hope I made this clear at the top. This is going to be a little bit random in terms of the names we get to. They're not all going to be star type players. They're not all going to be waiver wire type players. And we're going to move around in a bit of a random pattern. But Emmanuel Rivera jumped off the page to me because I was sorting by WRC plus since July 1st. And he ended up being, I think, somewhere in the top 40 when I looked. I didn't put it on the rundown. Good job, host. But a 324, 368, 507 line since July 1st. I think that conveys a high level of production that we would care about. It was a small trade that sent him from Kansas City to Arizona at the trade deadline. Maybe there's a playing time question here, but at least for really deep leagues, I'm starting to wonder if Arizona might have actually found a little bit of extra value in that swap that really didn't seem to move the needle for me on deadline day. We talked about this, I think, maybe in a trade deadline show that we both liked this trade for Arizona. We liked it for Rivera in terms of fantasy value. I think we both anticipated he could be really close to a regular in this Diamondbacks lineup, and he did start on Wednesday, but that was only his third start so far since the trade. So that's that's kind of disappointing, and it's really hard with just so few plate appearances to evaluate what Rivera's done, but... Uh, certainly what he's done with the bulk of his uh, season coming with the Royals is he, he's got decent power. So it's the kind of thing that if he were playing close to every day, he would absolutely be worth rostering in 15 team leagues. But at this point, he's if he's not playing more than he has been in this uh, first week plus, then he's barely viable in mono leagues. Yeah, that's the strange thing about it. I would think he'll find enough playing time to hold on to monoleague viability. I think it's a question of can he do enough in the final two months of the season to put himself in contention for a starting job next year? I think that's basically what he has to do to be a candidate for one of those opportunities. But I didn't think he had a stretch like that really in him. You look back at some of his minor league numbers, and for pretty good averages at most of his minor league stops, uh, has shown an ability to draw some walks on occasion. It's been in, in kind of up and down samples in recent years, so it's really hard to discern like what skills Emmanuel Rivera really has and what is just small sample size noise. But uh, doesn't strike out a ton, seems to have an understanding of the zone, has some pop, and might even offer some non-zero speed as well. So just one of those players that I I think if you kind of wrote him off as guy that's going to be an up-and-down player who's never going to play, you may have written him off too quickly. More of a watch list sort of player for me for deeper leagues as we look at the final weeks of the season. If the playing time ticks up, maybe he does become a bit of a glue guy for us. Uh, one player that's really popped in terms of his role, though, is Lars Newtbar. He has an everyday role now in St. Louis, and he was playing really well in a small role before everything kind of opened up for him. Simple question here, but a complicated answer probably. What's his true talent level? Because Lars Newtbar was on rosters for me very early this season, wasn't playing enough, got cut, and you know has shown in the upper levels of the minor leagues in recent years that he can produce when given the opportunity, at least in those circumstances. But what are you expecting for him now that the Cardinals are affording him a much uh, larger amount of playing time? I was very surprised at how many consecutive starts that Newt Bard has gotten. So, I mean, Brendan Donovan is pretty much out of the picture at this point. Um, but I remained a little bit skeptical because I wonder uh, when Juan Yepes comes back, and I don't know exactly when that's going to be, but I would think that that might eat into Newt Bard's playing time. It would maybe involve Tommy Edmond going back to the outfield. I'm just not sure how the Cardinals deal with all those those various players. Um 
you know, given that they do have somebody in Edmund who can who can play multiple positions. Uh, but assuming, let's just assume Newt Barr continues to have a, a at least a close to regular role. I think in a way his appeal, it, it, this is a player we're going to talk about very shortly. Um, it's a bit similar to me, like to Jay Cronenworth in that he he hits in a, a, a decent lineup. I mean, obviously Padres are much better than decent now, but he hits in a, a decent lineup, hits close enough to the middle of it that uh, his ability to get on base, his ability to hit for, for some power, um, I think could help him as a run producer. But I, I think that Lupar not only needs a playing time, but he needs to be in a situation like this to have uh, have value. I don't think it's 12-team value, but 14-15 team value uh, because I, I just don't think in that outfield pool he has quite the level of power uh, or batting average upside to really make him stand out in any particular way. I mean, I think it's the average that I'm most concerned about. I think the good news is he's always drawn walks. When you walk, you can be good enough OBP-wise to keep your job, and the batting average doesn't matter as much, even though it's something that we're chasing in most of our leagues. I do think if you look at him from a career perspective so far, in the big leagues, he's got 283 plate appearances. Lars Nukbar has popped 10 homers, and he's stolen four bases. So if you double that up to get closer to like 600 plate appearances, it's about a 2010 pace almost with the power speed combo so I can kind of see it I can see it working it's just the sort of thing where it's not necessarily a a star level ceiling and you just don't know if we're going to get all of that production in a role where he could be overexposed I think the really encouraging thing in the underlying numbers for Newt Barr for the season is that his barrel rate is up considerably from where it was last year he was at 4.8 percent last year that was over 58 games as a part-time player he's at 8.8 percent this season in 57 games so far, mostly as a part-time player, now as a regular. So uh, we always wonder, you know, when you go from that part-time role where you're kind of spotted in with all the platoon advantages and the team kind of puts you in spots they think you're going to be successful and productive, what happens when you get those tougher matchups that you may have been previously held out of? And I think you're making a good point about Yepes too. We don't really know how those two are going to coexist in the same lineup. So that could be an eventual concern for the playing time. But at least for the short term, Lars Nupar playing really well and playing a lot more than expected. Perhaps the biggest surprise of all, if you take a look at a leaderboard going back to the start of June or even the start of July, is the performance of Matt Carpenter. I went a little further back for this one. Matt Carpenter has the highest WRC plus in the league since June 1st, a 223. So yes, that means he's a 123% better than a league average hitter since June 1st. It's a 322, 423, 739 line, 13 homers in 138 plate appearances. And I keep hearing it on repeat in my head. When we first talked about him as a waiver candidate, I think we were in agreement. Sure, for deep, deep AL-only leagues, he could fill a spot and maybe start once or twice a week against the righty. And because of the park, you know, who knows, maybe he'll offer you some cheap power. But my goodness, if you picked up <laughs> Matt Carpenter in an AL-only league, you, that is like, that's like finding a $100 bill laying on the sidewalk. I mean, that's uh, it's been a huge boost. Unfortunately, you know, he has a foot injury right now, so he's going to miss some time. And we'll see if he gets back before the end of the regular season. But how the heck did Matt Carpenter do this i yeah if i knew that i uh could probably figure out a lot a lot of other things as well but um you know i i did look for for some clues and 
I just wonder if maybe you, you look at the, the previous three seasons where there was just a, a huge fall off in terms of skills and production. In 2019, Carpenter dealt with a, a couple of injuries. I know there was a back injury in there uh, as, as one thing he was dealing with. Uh, 2020, that's just a, a wild card for so many players. Um, and then 2021, at, at that point, I just wonder maybe, it, given that he had you know one season that was a down season where he was dealing with some injuries, and then there was just the, just the peculiarness of, of 2020, and then 2021. So following those two seasons, Carpenter at that point was no longer in the Cardinals' plans as a as an everyday player, and I just wonder if there was some kind of like cumulative effect there, and the, that loss of regular playing time and maybe just a couple of down seasons, if that affected him in some way, because when you break down what what Carpenter's doing, I mean, obviously if you prorate what he's, he's done in a little less than a third of, of a season's worth of playing time. I mean, no, it's, you know, I, I don't think any of us would expect Matt Carpenter to be like a 45, 50 home run hitter this year, uh, given full playing time over 162. But if you go back to his last full healthy season, 2018, he did hit 36 home runs and his profile this year compared to that year is not that different other than he's hitting a lot more fly balls, which might, you know, also explains some of the uptick. So that's my kind of, uh, you know, quilted together <laughs> explanation <laughs> of uh, how how he's gotten here. Yeah, and all of that makes sense to me. I remember also, I was just looking for this while you were laying that out there too. I thought I remembered hearing something about Carpenter working at one of the hitting labs during the offseason. And look, most most hitters do something, but... I wonder if maybe just a few years of, of not being himself kind of spurred him to take the extra time and, and try and make some wholesale changes. And it leads us to a question of you know, how sustainable is this? What what could there be for Matt Carpenter in 2023, assuming there's going to be a few teams interested in him at least as a, a part-time sort of player? Like, could there be could there be an encore performance uh, of some kind? Is there a little more left in the tank than we thought? Because the, the broader trend that you described made me think, hey, this is the end of a very good and productive career. A guy that probably exceeded expectations compared to what people thought of him as a prospect ended up being a really good player on a lot of good teams for a number of years. And look, everyone ages eventually. The K rate goes up once you get 26, 28, 30% in your late 30s. Usually that's the end. Maybe it's not for Matt Carpenter. I'm just, I'm a little optimistic actually about him maybe coming back again in 2023. And and because he's a little old, you know, people would just overlook him and, and not really want him at the bottom of their roster. Yeah. And I mean, he's 36. He's not 38 or 39. And I do think that that makes a difference. And Given what he has done and how extreme it has been in, in a positive way uh, over, uh, you know, a not tiny sample of plate appearances, I I would think it would be weird to not be optimistic about Carpenter for next year. I would expect some regression, but I mean, that's regression coming from a really great place. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd like to see him come back this year so we can see what he would still have left to offer and. Yeah, I'd like to see more to set some expectations for next year. The Carpenter story I was thinking of, I did finally track it down. It was a Ken Rosenthal story from February, late February. Matt Carpenter reached out to Joey Votto to try and and understand how Votto sort of turned around his career with what he did a year ago. 
And yeah, they work together in the offseason. Really good story from Ken, so be sure to check that out if you want to learn a little bit more about how Carpenter might have been able to pull this off. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Let's get to a few more players that really kind of stood out to us in some interesting ways. Ryan McMahon has seven stolen bases in his last 32 games. He was six of eight for for last season, which is it's totally fine. You're not really expecting a lot of steals from him. But I think for, for a guy that initially broke in as a corner infield, you know, third base prospect, the expectation was Ryan McMahon was going to hit for more power. And that has not been happening so far this season. In fact, it's a sub-400 slugging percentage for Ryan McMahon this year, which is tough to do when you play half your games at Coors Field. Yeah, really, you'd think it would be. And I, I have no explanation for the for the stolen bases and not really putting that much stock in it right now anyway. But every time I go back and look at Ryan McMahon's page on Fangraphs, I'm impressed but one thing that kind of always takes me back every time I see it, even though I should always remember it, is that he's never had a 100 WRC plus season. He's never had an average season offensively. Uh, so, you know, given the where he's at in his career, I mean, it's the Rockies. So that I could see them rolling Ryan McMahon out for several seasons to come, but I don't have great expectations if they do that. And I, I do wonder if maybe at some point he does get a reduced role. Yeah, I look at Ryan McMahon, and I wonder, we wonder this about all all hitters, going in and out of Coors, the difficulties of that are are well documented, right? The ball just moves differently in Colorado than it does everywhere else. You go on the road, it's really tough to produce. He's shown flashes in, in the kind of way where, you know, if you took the very best parts of his profile over the years, and you put those together all in the same season— you probably would get better than a league average result. But we have seen enough of him at this point. We're talking about two full seasons in 2019 and 2021, the shortened season, of course, in 2020. And he's on track to play another full season this year. We're closing in on 2,000 career plate appearances for Ryan McMahon. So what you see is probably what you get so long as he stays with the Rockies. I guess the broader question I have is, when do you finally give up on a player? Like I, the reason why I would be inclined to not fully give up on Ryan McMahon in deep leagues, we're talking 15 team mixed leagues. It's going to be probably an end game pick for next year. Maybe even a late season trade pickup in a league where you're streaming him at home, taking him out on the road and just sort of hoping that he figures something out on the stretch. Like when do you say enough is enough? He's not figuring it out until I have evidence to the contrary. I can't expect more from him. The reason I still believe 
the K rate has been better since the start of 2021. He's been right around 25% for the last two seasons. He's continued to draw his walks, and the barrel rate's not bad. 9.6% is not a bad barrel rate. He's at 8.3% for his career. It seems to me like there are still the ingredients we're looking for of a pretty good hitter, and I guess the fact that he's been running a little bit recently gives me something else to fall back on. It gives me a little glimmer of hope that even if from a real-life perspective, he's not going to be the player that the Rockies wanted him to be, that maybe from a fantasy perspective, he could sneakily offer a little bit of bottom-of-the-roster value. And this is probably going to become a recurring theme now because I've already brought, up, brought it up once on this podcast, and I'll bring it up at least one more time, is that I think one reason, is, and as you couched it in deeper leagues, to not give up on Ryan McMahon is that he's got 44 runs and 52 RBIs. So in a deeper league like that, he does have something to contribute in terms of run production just because of the situation he's in, because he's on a, a roster that really doesn't have very many other hitters that are better than him. Uh, so... If you took him out of Colorado, the, the ballpark aside, uh, and put him in any other context, that would really hurt his value. Yeah, I think actually the the parallels between Ryan McMahon and Jake Cronenworth right now are kind of interesting because Cronenworth still controls the zone really well, uh, is having a harder time barreling the ball now than he did when he first broke into the league. And I think what will always make the Cronenworth entry point of the league complicated is that it happened in the pandemic shortened 2020 season. So we didn't get to see how the league might adjust back to him. Obviously 2021 shed a lot more light on who he was as a player, but he exceeded my expectations last year. I thought there'd be more of a, a drop off in terms of the power, especially he popped 21 homers last year. Counting stats were good because he was in the lineup at some position pretty much every day. He ended this season with a firmer grasp on a starting job He's hitting the ball in the air a lot more often this year, and I'm almost wondering if he's the type of player that loses too much in batting average and doesn't gain enough in terms of power output to make that sacrifice. And I don't know if that's a short-term-ish sort of blip or if that uh, is actually the, the sign of a, a bigger problem for Cronenworth to solve maybe in the offseason. Yeah, and I mean, in one sense, it's a, it's a short-term issue because he's been hitting for fly balls more all season long, but it's really gotten exaggerated since the All-Star break of 57.1% fly ball rate, which is ex extremely extreme. Um, but uh, yeah, you made the exact point that I was going to make, DVR, that I think that Cronenworth is the type of player where that profile hurts more than it helps. And... Now he's hitting further down the order, and I think he's kind of on on shaky ground for somebody who is almost literally universally rostered, a 99% roster rate on CBS. I uh, believe it's in the that rate is in the mid-90s on Yahoo and ESPN. And I just feel like at this point, his value is almost 100% situationally uh, supported, uh, much more so than, than skill supported. And... You take out the month of June, he's got 37 extra base hits on the season as a whole. 16 of those came in June. So for for the bulk of the season, he's really been bereft of power and not hitting for average. Uh, so it really is just you know, hitting right now. I mean, before it was hitting ahead of a, a bunch of good hitters. Now he's hitting behind them. Uh, and I just, if he's going to be down, you know, seventh in the order, uh, I I'm just not sure how much value there is in 12-teamers. 
So I know with Tatis going through his rehab assignment, he's playing some center field, and of course he's still playing shortstop, so maybe they're going to move Tatis around a little bit once he comes back. But if you think about how the pieces fit on the Padres' depth chart, maybe it costs Trent Grisham some playing time, but maybe it starts to cost Jake Cronenworth some playing time, because I think Grisham at least for the better part of the last two months, has started to turn things around after a really bad April and May. He's at least showing us some of the things we saw in previous seasons. And I I don't know. Like it, it, Part of this depends on how comfortable they really are playing Tatis in center field, if they like that more or less than playing him at shortstop. If they like it more, then it's bad for Grisham. If they really want to keep Tatis more on the infield, then I think Ha Sung Kim could end up playing some second base because... You know, that, that's your alternative to Cronenworth. So that volume that was there for Cronenworth is not quite as safe as it was before. And I think when you start to lose skills, baseline skills out of the slash line, especially if you dial down the playing time even a little bit, that could be the thing that finally starts to push him off of, of some rosters. If he holds on to everyday playing time, even though he's lower in the order, I think you end up with better counting stats from Cronenworth than a lot of other waiver wire players, and it's just enough for him to hang on, uh, even though it's not the player you were hoping for back on draft day. Let's talk about Jeremy Pena. Is Jeremy Pena just going through the typical adjustment phase of a young player? I mean, we, we talk about baseball constantly as a game of adjustments. Young players come in. Sometimes they look amazing. The league kind of figures them out a little bit player has to adjust back, and that can take a while. That can take weeks. It can take months. It can take a full season, right? I mean, the whole sophomore slump to me is based on just normal regression and the way the league works, and it doesn't apply across the board. It's not really a thing I believe in, but I do fully believe in the league finding ways to beat you because that's what top-end talent does. That's what the best scouts and best coaches out there are able to do. Is that what you see with Jeremy Pena right now? I think so, um, because he was he was much better than I thought he would be just right off the bat and was able to, to sustain that through most of the first half or really all of the first half. Uh, since the break, he's hitting just 171 with only two home runs, a lot of ground balls. That goes a long ways towards explaining why he's just not been very productive, almost a 57% ground ball rate. Uh, but even when he is launching the ball, he's not hitting it with the very much exit velocity. So it just looks like kind of an overall funk that he's going through. And it's still, uh, you know, a short enough term thing that, um, you know, I I think that he certainly will be much better than this over the, you know, the the remainder of the season. One thing I just want to add for context, though, is I do think that even with the belief that Pena is going to bounce back before the end of the year, I think he is a little too highly rostered. I think he's just under 90% on CBS. And I had him in a 12-teamer, and I dropped him. And before before the cold streak, I dropped him just because shortstop is so deep. And it almost felt wrong to do it. And I went and looked at, this was a, a, a points league, and I went and looked at the point standings at shortstop. Pena was way down it. And again, this was before he started slumping. So I think just because of the depth of the position, if you have any doubt at all about whether or not you should drop Pena in favor of somebody that you want to pick up this weekend, it's it's probably not a bad idea. Yeah, so Aledmi's Diaz has played really well kind of in their super utility role, and they could justify playing Diaz more if they certainly if they, if they feel like Pena is, is struggling deep into August and, and into September. I think the other part of this with Pena, I think it's adjustments that every player goes through, but I also think he had a thumb injury that he suffered, I believe that was in mid-June, 
came back from the aisle on that, and then was involved in that scary collision with Joran Alvarez, and I think was in the concussion protocol. So I think between the thumb injury, the possible you know, lingering effects of that collision, there's a few other reasons to look at the downturn in production and say, okay, like this, this is unfortunate. This is not what I was hoping for after the fast start, but I'm still pretty optimistic about him long term. You know, I think the the Astros judgment in being willing to let Carlos Correa go in free agency still seems right enough. And I think, you know, barring the decision for them to go after a free agent shortstop this winter, which I don't think they would, I think I'm probably in on Pena as a, a bit of a, a buy low going the next season, right? If, if, if the final line looks anything like it does right now, he's got a 243, 286, 417 line. Jeremy Pena is going to be very affordable in 2023 drafts. He's going to be a middle infield filler, probably, mm-hmm. in a lot of 12 and even 15 team leagues. And I think given the lineup, given the the core skills he's flashed, I'm willing to take a chance on this profile next year in the context of it being year one, having the collision and having the thumb injury all on the ledger. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, I think you know, barring just a, a big surge uh, over the rest of the season, bigger than I'm expecting, that he is going to be probably a, a late rounder next year. And at that point, you know, what do you have to lose? I mean, very little, and you've got a, a whole lot of potential to, to gain there. So sometimes, Al, I use the podcast for personal gain. Um, <laughs> I I bring up questions that are mostly fears either about players on my team, so maybe on the team that I root for, and I, I look for comfort. Uh, I look for objective answers to help me understand what's going on and, and assure me that things are going to be okay. That being said, don't just assure me that things are going to be okay for the sake of doing that. Honesty is always appreciated. Corbin Burns has a 10.8% walk rate going back to July 1st. So we're talking for a starting pitcher. If you're doing this leaderboard game and you're cutting things off first week of July, July 1st, you're still looking at five to six starts. It doesn't take a lot to make skills look a little bit off over a sample this size. So I'm just putting that out there for the rest of this conversation as a bit of a blanket statement anyway. Is there anything to worry about with Corbin Burns? Because I look at him and I say, yeah, the home run rate's up a little bit for the season, but everything looks like it's in its right place. He looks like a guy that will still be a first-round pitcher the rest of the way in terms of value. If you're in a league where you can still make trades and you're trying to chase ratios and make up as much ground as you can with a starting pitcher, for me, Burns is still at or near the top of the list of pitchers that you might be able to get if if the team that has Burns is imbalanced the opposite way, right? You kind of need the dream scenario of you've got too much hitting, I've got too much pitching, let's work out a deal. That's probably the only way you're getting Corbin Burns. But does that walk rate going back oh, almost six weeks now that give you any reason to be concerned? No, it really doesn't. It's just, it is something that always stands out to me when I look at the box score because I just think back to last season when Burns went that uh, really long stretch with without walking anybody. Or what, I'm trying to remember now exactly what it was or what was consecutive games with you know one walk or, or fewer or something like that. But I 50, mean, just, yeah, 58 strikeouts before allowing a walk. That's last what season. it was. Yeah. Um, so I just, yeah, I just think of him as somebody who does not walk batters. So when I look at a box score and see that he's walked three or four, that's, that's weird. But, um, 
you know, we, we have this conversation, I think, almost on every show where we talk about a pitcher with a, a walk issue. And I think, OK, what's going on there? Because it's it's probably one of three things. It's either uh, the pitcher is just not locating in the zone as much uh, or they are locating in the zone, but hitters are laying off or they're getting behind in the count. And I'm not really seeing a consistent issue with Burns on on any of those uh, counts. Now, he did. He had a couple of games where he fell behind a lot, but it was just a a couple of starts out of like the last six. Same thing with the with the chase rate, some lowish chase rates in a couple of starts out of his last six. But it's not a consistent issue. So, yeah, I I think it's just a, a small sample blip. Yeah, that's what I've been attributing it to so far. If I see anything, it will come up on this show at some point, but it definitely surprised me to see it compared to the other top pitchers because the way I found this, I was looking at K minus BB percentage on a Fangraphs leaderboard going back to July 1st, and I was kind of just eyeballing the walk column to see like who's who's kind of bad, who's got a double-digit walk rate. Like, oh, Corbin, Corbin Burns is there. He's just not. It's just like you. I don't, I don't expect to see that skill kind of look weird for Corbin Burns for even a reasonably small period of time. Uh, but looking at that K minus BV percentage leaderboard, Reed Detmers, who's come up on a few different episodes now in the last few weeks, 15th in strikeout minus walk rate since July 1st. We know he kind of rediscovered the old slider during his brief demotion to AAA. We talk about buy highs a lot in the early part of the season. I wonder if Reed Detmers is kind of a late season sort of buy high where he's made this adjustment and it looks legit. It looks like he's sort of going to deliver on that potential that I, I saw this potential in him at the beginning of the season and I had to cut him because he got sent down and he wasn't missing any bats. Like it, I, I was wrong. So I let him go and I, I wanted to get him back when he came back, got him back in a few places. So I'm kind of like half right about Reed Detmers. And I don't know how I feel about that, but have we seen enough with the new pitch mix to trust this and are you interested in possibly trading for him just in redraft leagues I mean keeper leagues are a totally different animal he's a very young starter with a bright future but I think for people who are looking for help pitching wise compared to trading for Corbin Burns which is borderline impossible trading for Reed Detmers might actually be very easy to do yeah this idea of a buy high I think it's based on the notion that somebody's been demonstrating a skill but there's still some reason to to be doubtful about it, about the, you know, the long-term prospects. So, you know, when you're saying you want to buy high, that says to me, like, you you are totally buying what Detmers has done over his last uh, five starts, which I, I think that's really where, you know, when he came back up and where we've really seen this improvement. Um, I, I th- I'm with you on that because I think it's a short enough window that whoever's got Detmers may still have just a little bit of doubt about how uh, how this is going to go for the remainder of the season after just five starts worth of improvement. But in every one of those five starts, a double-digit whiff rate, when prior to that, he had almost no starts. He had a total of three starts previously with a double-digit uh, whiff rate. The last two, uh, a 19% rate and a 15.1% rate. The the, uh, the matchups over the, these five starts, at Baltimore versus Houston, at Atlanta versus Texas, at Seattle. So there's not a whole lot of ways you could, you know, put a pin in, in your, your good vibes about, about Reed Detmers. And I, I think there's also a lesson for me, at least here, DVR, in that the last time we talked about Detmers, which was maybe three starts in to this streak, 
And I was saying, I'm still doubting him. And I think there was a process problem there because we were building a narrative, one that you already laid out here, um, that he rediscovered the slider, the slider makes the difference. And so therefore he's going to be better going forward. I looked at just the slider results from those first three starts and they weren't that impressive. So I just thought, no, this is, this is a fluke. Well, he may, the slider may be helping him in ways that aren't showing up in the slider stats. It might just be a way that he is working it into his pitch sequence. That's maybe making his other pitches look better. So that was not very good process on my part. And I think sometimes it does help to take the macro view rather than to try to pinpoint exactly what's going on and taking the chance that you've, you've missed the boat entirely. Well, yeah. So the results on individual pitches, I think, are really noisy in the first place, right? Because you're you're yeah. isolating something down to a pretty small segment. And I think the other problem is that, as just as you described this, when you get a pitch back or add a new pitch or even pick up some velocity, the way hitters think about what they want to do against you changes but especially that new pitch because there's one more thing they have to think about so it, you, you could change up your location strategies a little bit you could have another pitch that works really well off the slider the results on the slider now are good it, 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 that's the that's the funny thing about it a 157 batting average against it, a 270 slugging percentage against that pitch so far i mean it's been fantastic by results he's got a good curveball too so now he's got two breaking balls he can use and then I think you can use the four-seamer a little bit less when you get two effective breaking balls. Or you could throw the slider to get the first strike. Maybe you couldn't do that before, right? You had to throw fastballs more often early in the count, and hitters were just sitting early fastball. So I think you're right. Like It unlocks this, this puzzle in a way where you have more options. You have more ways to attack hitters. They have fewer, they have fewer things they can guess right about. They, they have a, a more complicated process on their end because of, the extra weapon. So I, I just think that's always challenging. And eventually they start to figure it out, right? Hitters might figure out, oh, he throws the slider in these situations. So I can rule out this possibility in these counts, but it's more likely to show up here. That could be part of the story as well. Uh, but yeah, 15th in K minus BB percentage since July 1st really just looks like a totally different pitcher since that brief demotion to AAA. And I think the interesting thing about Detmers, the long term ceiling. For me, is probably not that of like a top twenty or top twenty-five starter. I, I think he's he's probably more of your classic like thirty-five to fifty range starting pitcher in fantasy. And those guys are relatively easy to find. But usually, a, a top thirty-five to top fifty range pitchers in your lineup more often than he's out. He's in a lot, probably eighty-five to ninety percent usage. You're sitting guys like that in the most difficult of matchups. And otherwise using them for the most part in the leagues I plan. Obviously, if you play in like an eight or ten team mixed league, things are a bit different. Um, but I still think, compared to where he was in the first part of this season, it's a pretty amazing transformation for Reed Detmers. Let's talk about Joe Ryan for a moment. Other than the surge in home run rate since July first, the skills seem to be very stable. The more we see of him, the more I can very slowly kind of push him into that same sort of group as Detmers. I don't, I don't know if you can ever expect more from Joe Ryan than being a top 30 starting pitcher. But if you doubted him coming in at the end of last season, I totally understand why. Now we're over 120 career innings at the big league level, a 397 ERA, a 105 whip, and a strikeout per inning that entire time. He does it with good control. And I guess the only question is, are the home runs here to stay? I mean, the recent 
number of home runs seems like a bit of an outlier, but he does seem like a guy that's going to give up his share of long balls. Yeah, uh, because he's extremely fly ball prone, and that's a double-edged sword for Ryan because he does uh, hold himself, you know, he does make himself vulnerable to a high home run ratio, but he's also now got a 249 career BABIP that I think is no accident because uh, he's got a lot of balls up high in the zone that, that wind up getting popped up and are easy outs. And that's partly why you see that disparity between the ERA and the the whip. I mean, I think he's just going to be one of these pitchers that is is going to be more valuable for whip than for ERA. Um, but yeah, there's enough strikeout appeal there that the the total package I think puts him exactly DBR where where you said uh, is a SP three SP four um, and somebody that you're going to start more often than you're going to bench. Yeah, I think. Being in the AL Central is great if you're an NL Central pitcher. Similarly, great matchups in that division. I think if if Joe Ryan had to navigate the AL East on a regular basis, if he were pitching for the Rays and going into some more hitter-friendly environments and dealing with some of the best lineups in the league more often, I'd be a little more skeptical. But I think he's in a great spot to have a nice productive run here for the rest of this season, but also into 2023 as well. Uh, staying in the AL Central, Tristan McKenzie's numbers are nearly identical to Sandy Alcantara since the calendar flipped to July. And I thought back in June, it looked like McKenzie was starting to fade a bit after a nice start to the season. So there was kind of that you were right and you were wrong and maybe you're right again on Tristan McKenzie, but you were skeptical midseason. So you really don't deserve credit for the turnaround at this point. But we've seen parts of two full seasons from him now, and I know a lot of my fear with Tristan McKenzie is a stupid bias I have against really skinny pitchers. Uh, and I think that's just an old scouting thing where you, know, you yeah. think, oh, he's going he's to break down. He's just not big enough to hold up over a full season. And I, I, I mean, Chris Sale is one good example of someone who's more or less for a good portion of his career debunked that. I realize he's dealing with some injuries now, but it it worked longer than people expected with sale. And I'm wondering if I should be learning a little bit more from that, that the, the body type might be different, but he's a Tristan McKenzie's a very good pitcher. And he's also in a great organization for pitching. And I should probably trust those things more than I worry about McKenzie being a guy that's probably, you know, 20 or 30 pounds lighter than you'd like him to be for someone as tall as he is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's understandable. Like you say, that's a, become a part of the, the conventional wisdom, but um, you know, in terms of comparisons, you know, you said uh, similar results to Sandy Alcantara, but I think in a way I, I kind of put him in, in the same bucket as Joe Ryan, because mm-hmm. again, he's another one who's got a, a pretty low ground ball rate, uh, but also locates uh, up in the zone a lot. And uh, is another low Babbitt pitcher um, McKenzie. Now he's got uh a uh, 226 career pap-up, which is extremely low, even lower than Ryan's, maybe a little bit uh, regression bound. But you've got the same sort of trade-off there that you that you have with Ryan, and a very similar comparison too in terms of strikeout and walk rates. So I think McKenzie maybe has overachieved a little bit with the low BABIP with an 80% strand rate, but uh, I. I wouldn't go too far with that, with regression expectations. I think that he's going to be somebody who is going to help with whip. Who's going to have a low enough ERA, maybe not in the low threes rest of the season, maybe more mid to upper threes, but good enough to, to get some wins, help you with the, uh, with the strikeouts with, with the low whip. 
And the curveball has been great for Tristan McKenzie again this year. It's the better of his two breaking balls, but he does have a slider that he throws almost as often. So does have a few different ways to to work against hitters. But I do think kind of similar to Detmers we talked about earlier too, because it's not premium velocity, that gives you an idea where the ceiling should actually be. I just think for, for McKenzie, I need to start pushing away some of those durability concerns because he's holding up, pitching well here in the second half of the season. And yeah, I don't think he can reach the the Sandy sort of level in the long run, but it's just amazing how well he has pitched over those last you know, five or six starts. Um, you put Sean Manaya on the rundown today, and I've kind of wondered this too, like what's going on with Sean Manaya? I was a little skeptical of him to begin the season. We hit a point in May where I wanted to start trading for him. I guess thankfully I didn't because things have really started to fall apart for him recently. They really have, and yet this is another case where case where the deeper you dig, the fewer answers that you find. But I think that after a certain point, you do have to let the results speak for themselves. And over his last 10 starts, a 648 ERA, the whiff rate is way down uh, during the 10-start stretch, 10.1%, which in this environment is really subpar especially when you're talking about uh, who you're looking at for fantasy rosters, uh, that that's generally not going to cut it. And just by comparison, prior to this 10-start stretch, he had a 13.4% whiff rate. So it's really a big drop-off. He's walking more batters. And again, if we get back to that uh, type of analysis you do around walk rate, there's a, there's a clear um, reason why. Prior to the slump, a 34.1% chase rate, uh, and that's something that Manaya has been good at. But during the slump, a 29.5% chase rate that, again, is mediocre at best. So I don't know. I couldn't find anything in terms of change in pitch mix, change in pitch velocity, uh, batted ball profile to say, okay, here's why these things are happening with Manaya, And here's why I would think that things are going to get better or not. But I think you just have to be very, very cautious at the very least. Yeah, and I wonder with a guy like Manaya, if it's something mechanical, if we can dig into release points or just find something that's a little off that way that's causing him to be uh, much more easily hit by opposing pitchers because it, I, I thought he was more of a, a known player. Like I thought we kind of knew what he was going to bring to the table and, and being in another pitcher-friendly environment in San Diego especially. I just thought his floor was really high, and it's been a, a really disappointing stretch for him. Uh, one more name to throw out there, Ranger Suarez, who I think I only have in one league, and I think he was cut from that team, if I remember correctly, uh, kind of in the early part of June. He is starting to churn out some good ratios again for the season, just under a 4 ERA, the whip's in the 130s, but that's probably more in line with what I expected when he reeled off an amazing stretch last season. What do you make of, of Ranger Suarez? I mean, the, no one expected him to repeat what he did last season either, but were you surprised by the early season crash being as harsh as it was? And and how much are you buying into some of the adjustments he's made more recently? I was surprised by the crash, and yet I had an, enough faith in Suarez getting closer to where he was last year that when somebody dropped him in TGFBI, I did pick him up. And that the timing's been good because uh, I think I got, got maybe one or two starts towards the tail end of the bad stretch. But now, you, you know, I'm getting the, the good starts from Suarez. And what you're seeing is a higher whiff rate because last year, what we saw when things were going well for him was just a whole lot of ground balls, a whole lot of really soft contact and, and a good enough whiff rate to to really make him dominant. Um over his last five starts, a 12.7% whiff rate, which is actually pretty darn good. 
and ground ball rate of um, just shy of 58%. So that'll, that'll work. Uh, again, yeah, you're right. He's not where he was in late 2021, but I, I will absolutely take this version of Suarez, and I think we can see him maintain it uh, over the, the rest of the season. Yeah, still more of a, a matchup starter for me just because of the home park. But I, I do think if uh, he was dropped, if, if you're playing in a league against me, I dropped him. Hopefully you're benefiting from uh, the good production because I am not. And uh, I gave up maybe a little bit too soon because his space in that spot in that rotation seemed pretty safe. But I just I bailed so quickly because I wasn't convinced initially on Suarez. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. You can find Al on Twitter at AlMilkYourBB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. We have our waiver episode coming up on Friday. We should be live at 4 o'clock Eastern on the Athletic Fantasy YouTube page. So if you want to watch us live and ask some questions about the waiver wire pickups you're thinking about for this weekend, feel free to drop by and ask some questions. Otherwise, the pod version will drop later in the afternoon, early evening on Friday. For El Melchior, I'm Derek Van Riper. We're back with you on Friday.